listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White and joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing? I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. You know, it, um, what, else, uh, what else would you rather be doing on a warm, gorgeous summer day than recording a podcast, Jeff? Well, I, you know, I enjoy both of those things and sometimes separately. <laughs> and, and, and today it's together. I guess. <laughs> but look, uh, today's show uh, is going to be a fun ride, I think. Um, because uh, two things. Uh, number one is we're introducing our listeners to um, uh, Kula's uh, creative director. Uh, and uh, I just love the opportunity to bring uh, some of our uh, own talent to the, to the show. It's been a really... Uh, fun experience, um, and and then secondly, I guess uh, I, what I love about today's topic is um, we're all in everybody in marketing. We're all building for an audience. We're all creating for a user, and um, man, they're hard to pin down, <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to know uh, what is an opinion. And what is actually able to be backed up? Yeah, what is what what is a fact? Yeah. <laughs> is there a US. fact? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to today's chat. I hope that uh, listeners will uh, uh, get some value out of it and uh, enjoy the ride uh, as we uh, chat about uh, all the nuances and uh, pitfalls of UX, and uh, as well, kind of the notion of uh, nothing surviving contact with the user. Mm -hmm. So. Without further ado, let's introduce today's guest. Yeah, so joining us today is Craig Edis. As you mentioned, Craig is the creative director here at Cooler Partners. Welcome to the Cooler Ring, Craig. Hello, guys. Feeling depression now. You've sort of bigged it up to something really huge. So this better be good. I better be on on point with my answers. Well, you've been working on your British accent, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. I sound smart. I don't know. <laughs> ah, I think I think I've got a terrible hybrid now with some words that I say that are a little bit too. Canadian in certain ways, but yeah, I'm trying to hold on to my Britishness. Uh, we have, we have to maybe send you back uh, more frequently or something. So you can, it's been yeah, a while since I've been back. <laughs> a yeah. bit of a re-up. It's been a while before since anybody's been anywhere. Yeah, really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that changes soon. Yeah. Um, well, look, Craig, why don't you uh, uh, give uh, give the listeners a bit of your uh, background and just kind of tell us a little bit about you for, for those sure. who don't know you as well as Jeff and I do. <laughs> so as you can probably tell, I am not from Canada originally. I uh, grew up in the UK and moved over to Canada when I was ooh, nearly tw just before I was 28. Um, so I've been here for, oh man, 13 years. That's scary. <laughs> um so I've, um, yeah, on my education, my background, I did a diploma in graphic design, and then I went to university for three years, graduated with an honors degree in uh, illustration and graphic design. Um, and I've been working in the industry for uh, 17, 18 years now, uh, working for kind of a mixture of in-house uh, design marketing teams, as well as for um, some really big marketing agencies, including, including Cooler. Um, I've done stuff around the world. Um, and kind of started off as a very much a print designer um, when I first got started and over the years just really embraced the, the, the industry shift into um, more of an online presence. And now I've, you know, I've kind of, I hit that hybrid section and now I've probably crossed the line more into 
the digital. So it's, yeah, I've kind of tried to ride the wave as I go. I think that's interesting too. And uh, you know, this may not be obvious to to anybody who isn't necessarily used to working with designers or or a designer themselves, but it's not common for people who are trained in more traditional graphic design to make the leap and truly want to get into the uh, ever-changing waters of digital, is it? It certainly seems to be a, a blocker for a lot of people. Um, Jeff and Carmen, as you know, like I, I teach at the, the university here, um, and just the amount of students that I talk to that are just, you know, it's like, oh, I want to be a print designer and, you know, I want to work for an agency and I just want to do, you know, logo design. And it's like, it's, it's not that you have, like, to be successful in the design industry, you, know, you have to be adaptable. You have to see opportunities that come up and, and kind of follow them, even though they're not necessarily what you thought, you know, would be your career path in the first place. It's a... Uh, an interesting way to, to go, but it's an important thing to keep there. Otherwise, you, you do miss out. And yeah, the, the industry shift is like everyone's on their phones 24-7 and, you know, everything's turning to digital one way or another, pretty much, that those, th those things need to be designed and, you know, and considered and knowing and embrace. I think that's probably actually, that's probably what puts a lot of designers off is the amount of perceived rules around online and digital creation of design is, oh, I've, you know, I've got to, it can't do this, it can't do that, it's got to do this. And it's like, but if you embrace the rules and you understand them like anything in design, you know, if you understand the rules that you can start to bend them and manipulate them to get the most out of what you're trying to accomplish. And you don't see it as being held back in any way. You see it as, you know, opportunities to be innovative as, you know, the industry grows and it's growing at such a, a huge rate and new things are coming out all the time. It's really great to see that progression and embrace those changes rather than, you know, you just go, oh, I just want to do book design. <laughs> and, you know, a book is still a book. And and follow the user. Um, yeah. We just, yeah, this, Which, is, yeah. This is all about users. We know where users are spending their time and where they're consuming information. And uh, it's, it's the place um, where you most interact with designed objects now yeah. is online yeah. or, or within digital platforms. So if you want to concentrate on one medium only, then great. It's called art. Um, <laughs> uh, but when we're talking about design and communication, yeah. especially in the context of marketing, well, yeah, yeah. and, and I, I think there's an interesting kind of dichotomy to what you said, too, because you said, you know, you have to, as a designer, you have to embrace all these rules or understand that all these rules exist. But you also, on the other side of it, you have to embrace a lot of uncertainty. Yes. Because you don't necessarily know how somebody is going to interact with the thing that you're making. Yeah, Every, everything that we design is a prototype, pretty much. It's the first time that it's been done. In a lot of cases, not you know, not in the in the larger sense of a website or something like that, but for the the use case, um, who the user is, what are they going to be doing, what do we want them to do with this, how do they feel about the product, um, what sort of interactions do we want to encourage, how do we want them to feel about the the business and the brand and their experience, all those kinds of things is is new almost every time. So yeah, we we draw from experience of doing this a lot and and seeing things, but that experience is built from watching users interact with things. So yeah, we, we create hypothesis of, I think this will connect with that person in that way, because 
it connected with this other group, demographic group, that's reasonably similar, you know, and we asked them to do a reasonably similar thing. So bringing those things together should work. Um, but yeah, we're, it, you have to be ready to be surprised and you have to embrace being wrong. And it's perfectly fine and it's perfectly accepted. The ability to fail is so important in what we do. <laughs> I know I know, probably the, the listeners don't want to hear that because it's like we should succeed every time. But, you know, it, it is part of it. You know, we just try to mitigate the ability to fail based on knowledge and learning from the user. But, but I think this is a critical point because I think, and, and it's a mistake, admittedly, that you see um, in some ways almost the more junior the marketer, um, the more frequently I find you'll see this mistake. Um, th this notion of um, uh, just that they're, they're, that they feel, I think, in some way that part of their salary is, um, is, is, being, is going towards their aesthetic sens sensibility. Like they're they're the tastemaker. Yeah, they're they're aesthetic. Uh, they're the ones that ha have been charged with saying whether or not something looks right. Yeah, and and and, uh, and this isn't a d designers fighting the client side marketers for creative control. It's rather saying, uh, hold on a second. There's actually a user preference that we're designing for here, and even given everything that we know. We also know that we need to be willing to be wrong. And and you've designed one site, client side, in your career, and you think you've got it nailed 100%. You know? And I, I just find it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, and I, I've, I've worked on both sides of the divide. And um, uh, I, I think it's, uh, if I had to say what separates in some way uh, um, an experienced uh, agency side designer, from a client, it's it's it, you know it's it's kind of it's in there. Yeah, it's in, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely that. I'd say it's one of the hardest things for marketers, designers. You know, anyone's kind of looking to review creative work is you've got to separate yourself. This, you know, it's like yeah, you you probably spawned it. You 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 wrote the brief and things like that, but it's not for you. You know, it's it's for some it's for this person who's on the outside. It's for this person that we want to connect with. So, bringing in your own senses of taste and what you think is right is probably going to lead it astray and and make it not connect with the user. And obviously, that's the prime thing. Um, I often find myself. I try to go into every conversation with a client is. I'm, I'm the representative for the user who's not there, right? They can't be there in the room. So I'm always trying to, you know, I'm certainly there to listen to the client as far as, you know, what we're trying to accomplish from a business point of view, what the objectives of this, you know, what how are we going to, you know, make business sense out of this and make money from it and things like that. But I'm also in... I've split my brain into two and the other half is like, okay, as the user, does this make sense to me? Is this, you know, I think that's one of the skills of the designer is their ability to empathize and bring that side of pushing their own opinions and feelings and likes and dislikes aside and bringing in somebody else's and, and representing that for the client so that the client can almost, you know, faux bounce ideas off the user even though they're not there and say okay yeah no this makes sense um so yeah it, it, it's not necessarily for the marketer to say oh i like it i don't like it you know it's it's not really what design is because design's there for a purpose it's there to do something it's you know the aesthetics of design is basically like a veneer 
It makes it look nice at the end of the day. But what's really important about design is all the structure and the mechanics behind it that make it do the thing that you want it to do. Anyone can make it look pretty, you know, any good designer, anything like that. But to make it do certain things in certain ways, push certain buttons with users is, you know, it's a, it's a skill and it's something that takes, I think, a lot of practice. And, and it's something you will never, ever know 100%. You will always, always, always learn more. I, uh, I I I completely uh, agree with this notion that like in, in, even you know in, in the the battle kind of uh, renews daily in terms of uh, keeping your uh, trying trying to keep your opinion and your aesthetic sensibility. I remember Craig once you told me that you just you feel like you've try you've had to have that conversation with yourself so much now that you just don't have an opinion that's based on taste. Like you find it very hard to say if you aesthetically think something's attractive or not. <laughs> yeah. People come up to me and go, Oh, have you seen the new logo for such and such a brand? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, what did you think of it? And I'm like, well, it's hard to answer actually. Cause I haven't seen the brief. Like it looks nice, but without seeing the brief, I, yeah. And that's when everybody who's not a designer is saying, "Craig, can we talk about something else?" Now? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, "Well, I can look at see. I can look at it from two ways. I can go, okay, aesthetically it looks nice, and then I can look at it from a structural point of view. You know, like technically, is is the typography good? Is the kerning there? You know, are the counters balanced nicely with the use of a negative space and things like that." And then what's what the real point of it is, is does it do what it was in the brief? Because even if I don't like it, it doesn't matter as long as it does what the user needs. Because, yeah, if it's something for 12-year-old girls, as I always say, 12-year-old girls who like uh, unicorns, I'm not really that demographic. But I can use my knowledge and understanding of markets and, and brand and things like that to go, okay, I know what will what I can do, how I can use color and form and everything else to to make it appeal to that person. So, yeah, it's it's hard for me now to go back and go, yeah, no, I actually do j just like that. Just, you know, it's, I can't do it. It's weird. I've been broken over the years. <laughs> so it's here, breaking a designer, like breaking a horse or something, you know? Like... Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe I'm in that in that right mindset now where I just need to stay as I have no personal opinion. I just do it based on the brief and the outcomes that we're trying to get to. Are your digital marketing efforts bringing in too many junk leads? Stop wasting time and distracting your sales team. Account-based marketing can help give your marketing strategy the laser focus on qualified buyers that you need to increase your pipeline velocity, close more deals, and grow your business faster. We've created a sample manufacturing ABM plan to help you get started. Download the sample manufacturing ABM plan at bit.ly slash sample ABM. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash sample ABM. You should get that on a t-shirt for whenever you present a design. <laughs> I have no personal opinion. No personal. <laughs> um, it would just help set the stage for the, for the day's event. Um, I, I do think that's interesting though. And, and it, you know, that notion of, you know, not necessarily having a, an opinion, but certainly an informed um, understanding of the principles of design so that you can apply them to something. But even then, you can be surprised. 
when you actually do see something in the context of, of an actual user trying to use something you've built. You know, when, when you go into usability testing um, for a site or an application or, you know, a calculator or who knows what, and, and you sit down and you ask somebody to walk through something, you know, what, what kinds of things have you seen that have made you um, not reconsider your life choices, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but made you, made you go, oh, I, I, I don't know why I didn't think of it that way. Like, like tell us a bit about that. So there's definitely ups and downs and, you know, actually going through user testing at the moment, a lot of spring to mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can, you, it can go from absolute euphoria, seeing people, like you come up with something, you're like, that's really cool. That's going to allow them to do all these cool things. And, you know, they can get this task done really quickly. And then they do it and they, they see the potential of it. And you're like, yes, that's awesome. And you feel really good about yourself. Um, yeah, other times you, you just screaming at them going what on earth are you doing but then you're like you gotta take a step back and go okay no i you're coming from this point of view this is your experience this is what you're trying to accomplish these are your you know outcomes that you want and and seeing that can yeah you you kind of your initial reaction is probably you know frustration or disbelief in some cases but you you take a step back and you go okay where you, the finger has to come back to what is, you know, you have to ask, be able to ask those reflective questions. What is failing and why? And how do we fix it? I think that's the, the kind of the core parts of good feedback is why, why is it wrong? How do I fix it? How do we not have, make sure this doesn't happen again? And yeah, seeing users use stuff, like we'll see, we'll set something up where um, it's got, you know, it could be a dashboard or an interface of some kind, and you've got lots of buttons where people can do various tasks, and it's designed to serve them however they want. Um, and, you know, we might be doing a user test where, some, you know, I can ask people direct questions and see what they're doing, which is great. Um, they might mention something about, oh, it'd be great if this did this. And I'm looking at the screen, I'm like, it's there. It's it's literally right in front of you. And I've, I've seen users that are saying, oh, it'd be really great to have this functionality. And their cursor is literally on top of the button that does that functionality. Um, and you're like, well, why don't you see that? Why don't you click on it? You know, what's, what is it? And you've got to take a step back and say, okay, well, there's obviously a fake, like the functionality is there. And when I point it out to them, they're like, oh, that's great. And they're so happy in the thing. And then I have to ask them, it's like, oh, why didn't you see that? Why didn't it, you know, stand out? Were you looking for something else? Um, you know, was the language not right in the button? Was the button, you know, is it the visual of the button or is it the language of the button or is it the understanding of the context of the button? So you have to kind of take a step back and just think, okay, well, one of those is failing. So it's that's where you can ask the users, like, okay, is it the language? Do they, do they not understand that term? Is it too technical? Is it too simple? Um, is the, the size of the button getting overwhelmed by other elements in the design, so it's becoming hidden? Um, is the color of the button, is the contrast and the accessibility of the button, is that failing? And that's why they can't see it. Um, so yeah, you have to kind of go with it and just see, you know, like I said, everything is a hypothesis to start off with, and then we user test it to find out if we're right. And if we're not right, that's great, because we're gonna make it better. 
Um, and that's why you have to embrace that. And if you were right, you get all the warm fuzzies inside um, that you were right. You can feel all smug for about 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, you have to kind of ride the wave of, of what it is. And, and it's not just from, you know, you can't fall into the trap of, oh, one user said that. You have to see if many users see, you know, say that sort of thing because, you know, a website isn't just for one person. Um, again, going back to the user as an entity and not just a solo player, like there's lots of variables within that user entity. So you've got to take into consideration, okay, well, person A didn't find the button, but people B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I had no problem with the button. So you're like, okay. And then that's obviously leads you down the questioning route of for person A is like, where were you struggling? What was it that you're not getting that everyone else seemed to have, have gotten? So yeah, it's a, it's a back and forth trying to just understand the psychology of what is going on and why is it going on? Why are they not using Or alternatively, really interestingly, how they start to use things in ways you'd never imagined, um, yeah. which is always great. I, I think that's the sign of a good design is when people can see potential in it. I always see that with when I'm presenting to clients, I know that the design is going over well when clients First of all, they feed back to me what I've done. And then secondly, they see the potential of what else it could be. Um, you know, like whether it's a piece of functionality or how they can reutilize it in a in a different way that you hadn't already intended. And seeing that from a user is really great because then it's a secular uh, relationship with the user where you're, you're throwing out a uh, design hypothesis idea they're seeing it, getting another idea, and then feeding that idea back to you as a designer. And you go, oh, in that case, if you want to use it for this, I could introduce this functionality. And they're like, oh, that's great. And we just keep going around and around and around. Obviously, you can't do that indefinitely because we have timelines and budgets. But it's, it's, you know, it's a really exciting part of working with you know, what is a complete variable at the beginning, probably, and you just kind of narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down into what is the perfect design that suits all the needs of that user for what they need that to do. What the, it's a lot there, but the, the pieces, just in all thinking right. through, no, 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 not at all. It's just that, like I have five things I want to say in response, but I guess the thing that really uh, sticks out to me uh, of a, a nuance in this work is that how people are just really very unreliable witnesses to their own behavior. People are not, whether it's in user testing or in market research, if you ask somebody why they did something, there's a very good chance they can't tell you. Yeah. Or, yeah. That, or, the, or the answer that they tell you will not be the actual answer. It's just simply their post-action rationalization of that behavior. Yeah, this um, is where I think like user testing is really important. One of the things... There's a limitation of it too, isn't well, it? But I mean, it or, is. or at least in combination maybe with visitor analysis or... Well, anyway. but the, the, the one point that I would make, and, I, and I've seen Craig do this, is get confused by how somebody does something or you know, have them not be able to explain themselves or understand it, but then watch four more people make the same mistake. Mm -hmm. And then you start to see those patterns, you know, everybody adds a little bit of, of why I didn't understand that or, or whatever. And, and that really, you know, I think that's one of the fundamental truths of user testing is that it's 
not so much the individual comments, it's being able to see the patterns and how people use things. And, and that helps you do it. If you just rely on, like you say, on, on one person kind of describing the reason they think they didn't understand it, you're probably not going to be able to develop an alternative that is going to work better. Yeah. And it's not about did five people explicitly request this exact functionality yeah. using these words. There's a layer of interpretation yeah. uh, for the person conducting the user test and that needs to, you know, yeah. needs to be there. Yeah. But you don't need a thousand people to come to those conclusions. That's you know, a, that's like a you can point. you can actually find repetition of behaviors within a very small subset of groups that gives you a good indication that will allow you to improve your design without being exhaustive hmm. on the on the testing side. I was going to say it's the the interesting thing between the difference between user testing and presenting. If I present a design to you, I'm going to point everything out. Um, and I'm controlling the situation because I can control the delivery, and you guys know what I do there. Um, <laughs> but so basically, I can influence how you feel about something because I am part of the experience of experiencing that website or system or whatever it is, you know. So I can point out those things to you, and you can go, oh, no, I see how that works because you explained it to me. But the beauty of user testing is. You don't tell them what you're looking for, and you don't tell them, you know, you can even misdirect them as to what you want to test them on because you get such an honest answer in response because they don't know if it's a right or a wrong answer. It's completely ambiguous to them as how they're going through it. They're just going to go through in a very natural and very honest way. Um, whereas if I presented it to them and then they they saw the presentation and then they went through it, they'd be like, oh, I remember Craig showed me this does this. I want to try it out. And it's like, well, I've tainted the test in doing so because you know that that's there. But if you can discover that it does that without me having to say anything, because I'm not there for every user helping them get through every website and every system that we design, if they can figure out on their own how to do that, then that's that's the win. That's the, the ultimate way of doing this because what I've designed is totally independent of me or anybody else helping them, which is the way that every good design should be. I want to ask both you and Jeff, I guess, because I mean, the two designers in the room here, um, uh, do, you, do you notice much of a difference uh, around whether or not people know they're being tested. I guess the difference between user testing and visitor analysis, looking at visitor recordings of people actually, you know, real users engaging in the wild as opposed to, you know, bringing people into a user testing environment and asking them to conduct tasks. I think you still taint them in that certain degree because, again, you know, the, the the lab rat knows that they're, they're in, a, in a lab conditions trying to, you know, filming them out in the wild, you're going to get a more honest response. And I think you see that from the data that we see. I just popped into my head of when we look at heat maps and you see all these clicks in one position and you're like, what on earth were they trying to click on? Like it's in the middle of a paragraph or something like that. And you see like a, a real red heat zone where like loads of people are doing it. And you just get people just randomly, some people, and I watch them in the user test, they just like to click. It's like, I'm going to click on that. I'm going to click on this and see what it does. I'm just going to click because it's something to do while I'm reading. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Drive the designer mad. <laughs> well, it makes it harder to extract data because you're like, is there a broken link or something? Or 
<laughs> what did I miss? Oh man, I, I think you know one one of the points you made around uh, around user testing, you know, is and you talked a bit about this around the accessibility of things, around the contrast issues and things like that. What is it? You get an opportunity to evaluate um, client brands, client sites. Um, you know, implement uh, new additions to existing platforms that you may not have been the original designer for. What are the kinds of things that you see from an accessibility perspective that uh, you think you know clients could just really be what you know marketers could really just be watching out for and, and yeah. learning from? I think it's a, a huge part, and and where. Obviously, everything that comes out of Cooler, we, we stringently make sure that every user can can enjoy the content and what we're creating. So accessibility is a huge part of it, um, not just like how they interact through keyboards and, and assistive technology, screen readers and stuff like that, but also how the site is presented and appears is a huge part of what I need to kind of, you know, things I need to work around in a... a strategic kind of way and a lot of it kind of spawns from from the initial brand design um and again going back to what we were saying right at the beginning you know a lot of designers just kind of don't want to embrace digital and just go the the you know print route or whatever it might be is they're not necessarily aware of accessibility rules around especially contrast contrast is a huge thing so you know like how one color overlaps another color and that's really just spawn and, and influences everything from the back brand initiation. Um, so we get a lot of brands come through where, you know, they'll have a core color palette or something like that, um, or even an extended color palette. And the first thing that I do every single time I, I get a set of brand guidelines or something like that is I run it through a color contrast checker. Um, and what that does is it gives me, um, basically, it's not a, it's got nothing to do with like opinion of colors or anything like that. It's purely uh, data driven is um, you have to have a color ratio of a minimum of 4.5 to 1. Um, it goes up to black, basically black and white is, is a 21. And that's the max that you can get. So it sounds like 4.5 to 1 isn't, that should be easy to pass contrast. It's surprisingly difficult. Um, to get you know a couple of colors laying over each other, um, so it's definitely something we come into issues with when we're you know evolving brands into a digital space or just evolving a, a brand that online that's already there. Um, so what, there's normally a couple of routes that we do um, either strategically work out how we can use the colors that pass with each other, um, or I normally go and talk to the client and I'm like, can we just tweak this, you know, yellow or something like that just to help it pass contrast and get it through. We're not messing with the brand. It still feels the same, but it just allows us a little bit more flexibility in the design. And we know that everyone's going to be able to see it and access it uh, and things like that. So that, that's a, a really big part of it and something we, we run into right from the, the get-go. Um, whenever I'm designing a, a brand for Cooler, I always try to make sure I'm building the brand colors palette with accessibility in mind. I'm constantly checking it. So I get away with a few more colors than uh, we often inherit. Uh, other things are um, typography, uh, making sure that you've got a good hierarchy throughout your type. That's just a general good uh, design practice anyway. Um, but also making sure that your font sizes are legible. 
Uh, we see that with a lot of uh, designers like to have the really tiny, like 12 pixel font, which looks really lovely from a distance, but can't read it. Um, 16 pixels for body copy is uh, just fine. That's great. Um, so things like that, making sure that you know everyone's getting the same experience. So font choice, again, is a big thing. Again, we tend to inherit that from um, brands that already exist. So we might be need some tweaking there, make sure that things present really nicely. And then basically what we're looking at after that is just that Everyone, you know, we're sort of setting it out so that users come through and can access the information at the right hierarchy in the right order, and they have access to everything. CTAs are clear. CTAs have enough contrast to break you out of, you know, just kind of going through the rhythm of reading a page of information. We want to kind of snap you out of that and say, hey, pay attention to this bit and interact with this CTA. So, again, the button needs to... Uh, meet accessibility so there's enough contrast there so we're drawing your eye to it so it's kind of a a, a double win you're, you're allowing you all users to be able to access your content but you're also helping to draw them in the right way and thread them through your site as you need them to i really like that that's a great concise way of applying you know how you think about your brand guidelines and how that actually applies to bringing things to life in a digital way yeah yeah, and give people just some really practical ways of thinking about it as they're as they're maybe onboarding a digital agency or or, or like you say making this transition from maybe brand guidelines that were more destined for print originally or what have you. And it's just really uh, really helpful uh, uh, and instructive. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for. Yeah, you can. The, the the normal giveaway is normally if they've got hexadecimal numbers next to their colors, you can tell if they considered online or not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if everything comes with CMYK values or Pantone spot colors, yes, you know you're doomed. in for it. Yeah. <laughs> you're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us, Craig. It was fantastic to chat with you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening to the Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.